Our text this morning is John chapter 3, reading verses 1 to 10. John chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Hear the word of the true and living God. Now there is a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you that unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? As far as the reading of God's holy and inspired word, you may be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for gathering us together as your people. We thank you for the privilege of being called by your name. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of prayer. We thank you for the blessing of your word. We thank you for the blessing of your day where we may come together to hear your word preached, to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs together. Lord, now as we open your word, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. Lord, cause your word to come alive in the hearts of your people. Use it to shape us, to transform us, to conform us to the likeness of Christ. Lord, if there are any among us who do not know you, I pray that you would use the preaching of your word to convict them of their sin, to draw them to yourself, and to glorify yourself in all things. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick up again in our series in John, and we come now to Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus. Now, this is a famous passage as it contains what is probably still one of the most, uh, probably the most famous single Bible verse, uh, that being John 3.16, which we'll come to next week. And this is an absolutely loaded section, doctrinally speaking. What I mean is there is a whole host of doctrine, of teaching that is packed into this section. It is densely loaded. You can picture this passage as a small suitcase uh, that is overfilled to the point of being ready to burst open its zippers. In just a few short verses, Jesus teaches us about man's nature, about the power and the freedom of the Holy Spirit, about both the necessity and the sufficiency of grace, as well as the nature of true conversion. Uh, this is a passage that gets to the heart of the matter, to what is at the very root of Christianity. And so let's begin to unpack this bursting suitcase. Verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees 
named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus, we are told, was a Pharisee, and he held a position of authority among the Jews. It says he was a ruler of the Jews, likely a member here of the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night to ask him some questions. Now, we're not told why Nicodemus came at night. We can speculate, as we saw last week, at this point in the story, Jesus has already cleansed the temple, turning over the tables of the money changers, making a whip and driving out uh, the cattle, the, or the animals that were being sold there. And unsurprisingly, Jesus has now drawn some criticism for this action from the Jews. And so we can understand uh, that if the Sanhedrin, if the rulers of the Jews had already adopted a hostile position toward Jesus, Nicodemus may have been afraid of losing his position or losing his authority or his reputation if he was seen associating himself with Jesus. And so this very well could be the reason that he came at night in order to avoid being recognized. Now, while we could understand this on one level, and we can maybe sympathize with the desire to remain unknown as he begins looking into these questions, the fact is, in the final analysis, followers of Christ will not be able to keep their religion hidden. As Jesus himself said, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Luke 9, 26. Alexander McLaren writes, There is something wrong with any convictions about Jesus Christ which let themselves be huddled up in secret. The true apprehension of him is like a fire in a man's bones that makes him weary of forbearing when he locks his lips and forces him to speak. If Christians can be silent about their faith, there is something dreadfully wrong with their Christianity. If they do not regard Jesus Christ in such an aspect as to oblige them to stand out in the world and say, whatever anybody says or thinks about it, I am Christ's man, then be sure that they do not yet know him as they ought to. Close quote. Would you call yourself a Christian and yet live as though you were ashamed to bear the name of Christ? Brothers and sisters, this must never be. There are many things that we ought to feel toward Jesus Christ. Shame is not one of them. Just consider who Christ is and what he has done for you. He is God the Son. As John has already shown us, he is the eternal Logos, the eternal Word of God, the very being, the very one through whom, the very person through whom and for whom all things were made. He then humbled himself, and entered into his own creation 
taking on a human nature. Right, as we celebrate at this time of the world, God of God, light of light eternal, very God begotten, not created. He humbled himself and was born in a stable and laid in a manger, having become man so that he could be the savior of man. How could we possibly be ashamed of our Lord, our Messiah, our Savior? How could you possibly be ashamed of the one who suffered the wrath of God for your sins on the cross? Think on that. How could you be ashamed of the one who conquered death, ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he lives as your advocate, your intercessor, praying for you in the presence of the Father, night and day, pleading your acceptance before God on the basis of his finished work? How could you be ashamed of the ruler of the kings of the earth, reigning at the right hand of God, waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. Brothers and sisters, are nations ashamed of their national heroes? Are they ashamed of their champions? Are people ashamed if they have a noble, a great, and honorable king? No. Deep reverence, Holy fear, overwhelming gratitude, passionate, overflowing love, these are all appropriate for us to feel toward Christ. But may it never be said that we were ashamed of our Lord, our Savior, our Master, and our King. Now, to Nicodemus's credit, he eventually does seem to find his courage. John chapter 7, verse 50, we see Nicodemus there uh, stands up for Jesus in a conversation with the other Jews. And we see that even after the crucifixion, Nicodemus brought spices for the body of Jesus. Now, these two events have led many to speculate that Nicodemus did eventually become a true follower of Christ. In any case, at this first meeting, we see that he comes by night and he says... Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, chapter 2, verse 23, if you just look back a little ways there, uh, recorded for us that Jesus had begun performing signs. He had been doing miracles at the Passover feast in Jerusalem, and not surprisingly, this had caused Jesus' reputation to spread. Right, that's the kind of thing that gets around. Somebody is doing miracles, mighty acts, mighty works. And so Nicodemus had heard of these signs Jesus was doing, and to his credit, he concluded that these signs demonstrated Jesus was truly from God, that God was truly with him. Now, these signs, these things that Jesus was doing and would continue to do, would continue to be a challenge for the Jews. The mighty acts of Christ became very difficult for them to ignore. The blind were seeing, the lame were walking, evil spirits were cast out. Jesus even raised Lazarus from the dead. The mighty works of Christ demanded a verdict. Who is this man? 
a challenge is for each of us today as well. What, what do we do with Christ? Who is this man? Now, Nicodemus concluded, contrary to what many of his colleagues would conclude, that Jesus was a man sent from God. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus answers Nicodemus by saying, Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, firstly, what is it then to see the kingdom of God? What's Jesus talking about here? Well, we can see from the context, as Jesus will say in verse 5, uh, it, to see the kingdom of God is parallel to entering the kingdom of God. And that is not just heaven. Rather, this is a metaphor for salvation. And as Paul says to us in Colossians 1.13, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He says of the saints, they have been transferred into the kingdom. So then to see and then to enter the kingdom of God is to be delivered out of the domain of darkness. And we see this is a present reality for Christians. To see and enter the kingdom of God means to have salvation, to have spiritual life, which will eventually culminate in eternal life. Jesus says that before someone can see and enter the kingdom of heaven, something needs to happen. Unless someone is born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. So follow the argument here. If this thing, being born again, does not happen, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Something must happen first. The new birth. You must be born again. Now we'll unpack the new birth in a moment, but first we see Nicodemus uh, completely missed the point. Uh, he took Jesus literally, and being very confused, he asks, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, physical birth is certainly a one-time event. There is a very good reason that babies are small. And so Nicodemus is absolutely correct in this. A grown man cannot be physically born again when he is old. Re-entering the womb is not an option. This much is true. But it's also not what Jesus meant. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. 
So Jesus begins to unpack this statement. He begins to explain that to be born again is to be born of water and the Spirit. So we see to be born again is therefore not a physical reality. It is a spiritual one. Now let's unpack this further. What does Jesus mean when he says born of water and the Spirit? While it's been common to see a reference here to two separate acts, uh, one being baptism, born of water, and the other being a work of the Holy Spirit, born of Spirit, D.A. Carson argues convincingly that this is not the best interpretation. Firstly, he writes that the expression, born of water and the Spirit, is parallel to the phrase, born again, or born from above. In verse 3, Jesus is explaining what it means to be born again, and he says it means to be born of water and of the Spirit. And so those who would see born of water as a reference to baptism, and then born of the Spirit as a work of the Holy Spirit, now have two additional births. And Carson argues this doesn't work since born of water and Spirit runs parallel in the text to born again. Secondly, Carson points out that when Jesus says, uh, that Jesus says, born of water and the Spirit, if there were two births in view, right, one of water and one of the Spirit, you would expect Jesus to say it that way, born of water and born of the Spirit, rather than saying born of water and the Spirit. And so Carson writes, the most natural way of taking this construction is to see this as a conceptual unity. There is a water-spirit source that stands as the origin of this regeneration, this new life. Thirdly, Jesus rebukes Nicodemus in verse 10 for not understanding these things despite being Israel's teacher. In verse 9, we see Nicodemus replies, how can these things be? Verse 10, Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not know these things? And Carson writes, this in turn suggests that we must now turn to what Christians call the Old Testament to discern what Jesus had in mind. If Jesus were teaching some brand new doctrines that had never been revealed before, then his rebuke of Nicodemus really wouldn't be fair. Right? How is Nicodemus supposed to know something that has never been taught or revealed? But the fact is, the Old Testament does reveal what Christ is talking about here. As a teacher of Israel, right, a, a rabbi, an expert in the scriptures, Nicodemus absolutely should have known about the need for spiritual transformation. While there's no one passage that uses the exact phrase, born of water and the Spirit, we do see these concepts throughout the Old Testament. And in fact, we see all of the key ingredients from this discussion present in Ezekiel chapter 36. And you can turn with me there. <clears throat> Ezekiel 36 will begin in verse 25. God says, 
I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So notice all the key ingredients from Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus present here in this text. Water, spirit, transformation, and renewal, and all of these things connected to a future time of God's blessing. And so if this is the background that Jesus had in mind, this would then make good sense of why he would rebuke Nicodemus for not understanding him. God in the Old Testament had already revealed the need for spiritual transformation. Jesus was not using new categories. God had prophesied a time was coming when he would cleanse his people as with clean water, cleansing them from their uncleannesses. God had prophesied a time when he would change them, removing their hearts of stone and granting them hearts of flesh, hearts that work properly. God had prophesied a time when he would put his own spirit within them. Now we'll come back to this, but to return to John, let us just follow Jesus' argument through the text. First, we have seen that before someone can see or enter the kingdom of God, before they can receive salvation, something must happen. They must be born again. They must be born of water and of the uh, of water and the spirit. Careful there. Um, so we see there is a spiritual change that must take place. In our natural state, we cannot see the kingdom of God. But we must be born again. Verse 6, Jesus says, That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So D.A. Carson comments that natural human birth, right, being born the normal way, produces people who belong to the earthly family of humankind, but not to the children of God. Only the spirit gives birth to spirit. So we see here, there is therefore a spiritual change which must occur in us. Our natural state, our natural condition is insufficient. Now let's just pause for a moment and ask, why is this? Right? Why do we have this need for a spiritual change, for a spiritual transformation? Right? What does the Bible reveal to us about our nature? Well, the answer is that we are, by nature, sinners. Consider some of these texts. We are dead in transgressions and sins. Ephesians 2 verse 1. We are by nature slaves to sin. John 8, 34. Another text. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Romans 3, 9 to 18. We are sinners. Our hearts by nature are stone. Ezekiel 36. And so this is the teaching of Scripture about the nature of man. We summarize it with the phrase, total depravity. What that means is not that man by nature does as much evil as he possibly could. In fact, we see it as a great blessing that God normally restrains the wickedness of man's heart. We're not saying that every natural man is as evil as he possibly could be. Rather, what we're saying is that sin has infected and affected every part of our being. Our will, our emotions, our reasoning, our consciences, our sense of right and wrong. There is no part of us that has not been tainted by sin. The effects are total. There's nothing accepted from it that is not stained by sin, but rather uh, we are uh, depraved in every area. Sin has touched every area. And so the result of all of this is that if we are left to ourselves and God does not intervene, the result is that we cannot see the kingdom of God. The person who remains dead in sin cannot make themselves alive. The person whose heart is made of stone cannot make it into a heart of flesh. And here's the kicker, nor do they want to. By nature, we are slaves to sin. We are slaves to sin because we love our sin. John 3, 19, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We are by nature slaves to sin in the sense that sin is what we want to do. As we saw in our Galatians series, the desires of the flesh are against the desires of of the Spirit. Our nature is fallen, and our desires come from our fallen, sinful nature. And this leads to a real inability to see or enter the kingdom of God. As Jesus will say in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come. No one is able to come. By nature, we cannot come because we do not want to come. And we do not want to come because our desires arise from our nature. 
It is the very willingness to come that is lacking. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. A polluted well cannot produce fresh water. In the same way, an evil heart cannot produce good desires. No one can come unless, unless something happens, unless one is born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. God must intervene. Grace is necessary. God must work in the heart of man. Man must be born again. There must be a spiritual change in the inner man, as radical and far-reaching as if he were born a second time as a new man. So, what is the new birth? What does it mean to be born again? To be born again is to be born of water and the Spirit. And if we're correct in seeing Ezekiel 36 as the background for this phrase, then the meaning becomes quite clear. From that text, we see that to be born again is to be washed clean internally by God. Right? He sprinkles us with clean water to cleanse us from our uncleannesses. To be born again is to be given a new heart, to have our heart of stone removed, and to have a working heart put in its place. It is to have the Spirit of God within us, verse 27, to have God then cause us to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. It is nothing short of transformation. As Calvin puts it, not a small correction of one part, but a renovation of the whole nature. To draw from the rest of Scripture, it is being made alive, even when we were dead in transgression and sin. It is to be made into a new creation, such that we can say, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 it is having died to sin and having been raised to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 3, and 4. It is a complete transformation of the inner man, such that we are no longer who we used to be. We are new creatures in Christ, dead to sin, alive to God. This is regeneration. God bringing us to new life, born again. And all of this transformation of our hearts will bring a radical change. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. John says this, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep sinning because he has been born of God. 
So if you are born of God, born from above, born of the Spirit, born again, you will not make a practice of sinning. That is, you will not make sin your lifestyle. A person who has been born again will not live a life of unrepentant sin. Now, while, of course, we will all continue to struggle with sin until Christ returns or calls us home, the life of the Christian, one who has been born again, John says, will not be marked by unrepentant sin. For God has changed him. Charles Spurgeon once said that if you are a child of God, you will never be happy in sin. You are spoiled for the world, the flesh, and the devil. When you were regenerated, there was put into you a vital principle which can never be content to dwell in the dead world. You will have to come back if indeed you belong to the family. Close quote. Galatians 5.17, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So where you were formerly content to live in sin, once you have been born again by the spirit of God, you will no longer be at home in sin. The new birth brings with it new desires. It involves a change in your appetites. While the world, the flesh, and the devil will still be working to make sin look appealing to you, we see there is now another principle at work in you. The desires of the spirit will war against the desires of the flesh. And if you have been born of God, if you have been born again, you cannot keep sinning because you have been born of God. And so those who would say that a Christian may continue to live in unrepentant sin and trust that they are saved because they said a prayer one time, such people have completely missed the scriptural teaching of the new birth. Anyone who would treat the gospel as a license to sin, thinking that because of the grace of God through Christ, they can live a life of sin and get away with it, such a person is deceiving themselves and endangering their souls. For as we've seen, true conversion to Christianity involves radical transformation from the inside out. And so the person who goes on deliberately sinning, right, not fighting it, not working at all to put sin to death, but rather unrepentantly, unapologetically living in sin, this person is giving evidence through their lifestyle that they have not been born again. Their souls are in danger. Why? For unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He will not enter the kingdom of God. That brings us to our next question, which is a big one, and that is, how can someone be 
born again? Is this something that we can produce in ourselves? I remember in my younger years being puzzled by this passage, having the impression that Jesus was commanding us, go be born again, right? go make yourself born again, go do this thing, get born again so that you can see the kingdom of God as if it were something we could accomplish in and for ourselves. But you'll notice that Jesus nowhere tells Nicodemus to go make himself born again. Jesus does declare, you, ye, plural, meaning all mankind, must be born again. He says, this is necessary before anyone can see or enter the kingdom of God. But there is no imperative there. This is not an instruction. It is not a call to go do something, not to go make yourself born again. Rather, this section is Jesus teaching us something about the nature of salvation. And that is this. Salvation is the work of God. What I hope you noticed in the passages that described and explained the new birth is that in all of them, it describes a work of God in the heart of man. God says, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I will sprinkle you with clean water. I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Ephesians 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you walked. You were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, you were dead, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. A man with a heart of stone cannot replace his own heart, nor does he want to. A stony heart has been hardened toward God, and the very thing that needs to happen is a change of heart, and God says that he is the one who does this. We are dead in sin by nature. Not sick, not ill, but dead. So there will be no cooperating with God's grace. For apart from his work in us, we do not seek God. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God, Romans 3. We are blinded to God such that we cannot see the kingdom of God, much less enter it. Unless. Unless we are born again. And to be born again, to be granted spiritual life, is a gift of God. It is the work of God. Let's continue on verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus draws a comparison. Now, we've all heard and seen the effects of the wind, right? We see the grass swaying in the breeze. We see clouds blown along. We can hear the wind rushing through the branches of the trees. You can see and hear its effects, 
but the wind can neither be controlled nor understood by human beings. D.A. Carson writes, so it is with the Spirit. We can neither control him nor understand him, but that does not mean that we cannot witness his effects. Where the Spirit works, the effects are undeniable and unmistakable, close quote. We are not the cause of the new birth any more than the tree is the cause of its own branches swaying. It is the wind that blows. We can see its effects. It is clear to us when the wind is blowing. We see the branches move. But we do not control nor understand the wind which blows where it wishes. Likewise, it is the Spirit who, who moves in men. We see the effects, right? We see lives transformed. We see men who were dead in sin, now made alive, granted spiritual life, proclaiming their faith in God. We see lives transformed. People who were once in slavery to sin, formerly loving the darkness, loving their sin, now coming to the lights and experiencing grief and sorrow over their sin. It is God who changes hearts. It is the Spirit who causes people to be born again. He grants new life. He grants new desires. And until he does this in someone's heart, no one can see nor enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again. And to be born again is to be born of the Spirit of God. It is the work of the Spirit of God. Salvation is of the Lord, and he grants it to whom he wills. D.A. Carson again, as the water and spirit birth is grounded in Ezekiel 36, so there may be here an allusion to Ezekiel 37. There, God's breath or spirit comes upon the valley of dry bones, and the dry bones are revived. God's people come to life. Thus it is with everyone born of the spirit. They have their origin and destiny in the unseen God. You may remember in Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel is brought to a valley of dry bones, and behold, they were very dry. To summarize that text for you, um, Ezekiel 37, verse 3, And God said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones. And say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. Verse 7, So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, on the, and breathe on these slain so that they may live. So I prophesied as he had commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. This is glorious. This is encouraging. 
for we see in this that there is nobody who is beyond the sovereign grace of Jesus Christ. There is nobody who is beyond the reach of the Holy Spirit who, like the wind, blows where he wishes and grants spiritual life, spiritual birth, life from above. You may know of people, you may have loved ones, friends, family members, co-workers, people who look to you like they belong in this valley of dry bones, devoid of life, dry, dead in sin, hearts of stone, no interest in spiritual things, no desire for God, who perhaps even get angry with you when you bring up the gospel. Do not lose heart. For as the Spirit gave life and breath to the dry bones, or as the Lord's call brought life to Lazarus, so can the Holy Spirit bring new life to those who are dead in sin. Now, it can be easy for us to get discouraged when we see people, churches, institutions, towns, regions, or countries that were once, broadly speaking, faithful to the Lord, be frustrating and discouraging to see them becoming increasingly secularized. As we look around at the valley of dry bones, it can be tempting to despair of any hope or hope for revival or renewal. But if we trust in a sovereign God, if we see what Jesus is teaching us here in John chapter 3, we must trust that there is nothing beyond his power. There is no heart that God cannot change. There is no town in which God could not bring revival. There is no nation which God could not turn. As we're taught in the Psalms, the heart of the king is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it where he wills. So brothers and sisters, do not lose heart. Do not cease to pray for revival in this town as if that were beyond the power of God. Do not cease to pray for those who are lost. Do not despair as if your loved ones were beyond the reach of Christ. For the scriptures testify that we were all once dead in sin. If you are in Christ, if your heart beats with love for God and a desire to please him and glorify him, you are living proof that God raises the dead to spiritual life. Why did you repent and trust in Jesus? Do you think that was something you produced in yourself? Was your heart less stony than stone? Do you suppose that you were only mostly dead in sin? That there was something different or special about you? No. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Born from above. Born of the Spirit. God did that in you. He changed your heart. He gave you new desires. He called you effectually by his spirit. He removed your heart of stone and granted you a heart of flesh. 
He made your stone-cold dead heart willing to respond to the gospel. If you are in Christ, you are living proof that God raises the spiritually dead. So do not despair about your loved ones. Pray to the Lord who raises the dead. Prophesy over those dry bones. Prophesy to the stony hearts. Proclaim the gospel, trusting that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Proclaim to them that Christ is a perfect Savior who died on the cross to take the wrath of God for the sins of his people. That he rose again from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and now promises forgiveness to all who would repent and believe. Then pray and trust, knowing that it is only the Spirit of God who can cause the Word of God to take root and then bear fruit. Proclaim the gospel to all who will listen. Invite people to church and use the influence you have to glorify God and to advance his kingdom. And if you are here today and you do not know the Lord, then in the words of Hebrews 3.15, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Turn in repentance and faith. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. To close this morning, I'd like to leave you with a warning um, and some practical advice on how to find assurance. Matthew 7, 21 and following, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now here is the terrifying reality. Jesus says that there will be people who believed that they were saved who end up turned away at the last day. Right? They thought they were saved. They claimed the name of Christ. They called him Lord. They even did ministry work in his name. And Jesus says to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, the only thing worse than self-deceived, professing Christians being turned away at the last day would be self-deceived, professing Christians turned away whose pastors never cared enough for their souls to warn them. Brothers and sisters, examine yourself. Are you born again? Have you seen evidence of the Spirit's work in your life? Has your relationship to sin changed at all? Do you now experience grief and sorrow over your sin? Does it burden you to know that you have displeased God? Do you find the holiness of God to be beautiful? Do you have a love for the things of God, for his word, his worship, his sacraments, for his people, the church? Do you have love for Christ 
Are Christ and his gospel becoming more precious to you? Are you growing in gratitude for the grace of God? And are you seeking to apply that grace to others in your life, forgiving others as God and Christ forgave you? These are all marks of grace upon the soul. If you see these things in your life, they provide evidence that the Spirit of God has been at work in you. Like the movement of the branches give evidence of the presence of the wind, so too these changes in your life give evidence of the presence of the Spirit in you. If you see in yourself things that Scripture says can only be produced by the Spirit of the living God, this can grant great assurance to the struggling believer that they are a child of God. Now to the Christian who is struggling for assurance, I encourage you, put sin to death. Begin to live as one who is dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Pray and labor to stir up your affections for the Lord. Walk by the Spirit. For in seeing yourself live as only born-again children can live, this will greatly enhance your assurance. Now on the flip side, if this evidence is lacking, if you do not see any evidence that the Spirit of God has been moving in your heart, you may be a hypocrite. You may have been living in self-deception. It could be that the root of the matter has never been in you. And so the message to you is simply this. Flee from the wrath to come. Even now, come to Christ. If you are hearing the sound of my voice, it is not too late for you. Repent of your sin. Throw yourself in earnest humility upon the mercy of God in Christ and the promises given that you will find him to be a perfect savior. Amen.